Good afternoon, Seven Investors, and welcome to the Friday edition of Seven Investing Now. My name, of course, is Daniel Brooks Klein, but you can call me Dan. My friends call me Dan. And I'm joined here today by a lot of my friends. I have the entire investing team, all seven of us, me being one of them. So me plus six, four, seven, investing now. Guys, welcome to the program. We're going to start with something a little bit silly. Most of the show is going to be answering questions either that you ask us here in the live chat or you asked us on Twitter. We've got a jam-packed show, but we're going to start by going around the room and asking everyone to give a quick introduction, what they cover, who they are, and tell us the best Christmas gift they've ever received. Austin Lieberman, you are up first. Hey, uh, Austin Lieberman, can you hear me okay, Dan? Yes, we can. Okay, good. Uh, Austin, I cover mostly um, enterprise software, uh, digital entertainment type companies, and then uh, also just like to study any great company and own any great company. That's what you'll see me recommend for 7investing. Best Christmas present I ever received is the <laughs> dancing Christmas seal. He used, uh-huh. to, uh, <laughs> he used to turn on and play a Christmas song. Uh, and I used to annoy everybody. I used to bring it on all my military trips and bring and annoy everybody with it. But uh, he's broken because I have tried to rip his head off. We will work <laughs> on repairing the Christmas seal. Matt Cochran, tell the people who you are and your best Christmas gift ever. Yes, I'm Matt Cochran. I just look for companies with wide economic moats that I believe can sustain and grow profits over long periods of time. That's mostly in the fintech space. The best Christmas gift I ever got, I think the best Christmas I ever had was uh, when I got Omega Supreme and Optimus Prime for a <laughs> Transformers fan, and uh, that was like a bounty for me. That uh, I got the one that uh, shot tape decks, uh, and that was my favorite, uh, but not the gift I'm going to pick. Manisha Sammy, tell the audience who you are. Oh, oh Man- muted. Manisha is muted. Uh, we will come back to Manisha. Why don't Max, why don't you jump in while Manisha fixes her audio? Max Chatsko. You're muted. Hey, too. Uh, there you go. <laughs> I'm Max. I cover uh, renewable energy and I call it living technology. It's just a better term, I think, for uh, biotech and synthetic biology and all that fun stuff. Best Christmas present I ever received was uh, Christmas 2025. Simon buys us all Tesla Roadsters, guys. (laughs) (laughs) We are looking well in advance. Let's go back to Manisha Sammy. Manisha, can we hear you now? I hope you can. Yes, we can. Okay, great. Uh, So I'm Manisha, and I generally like to cover uh, biotech companies, uh, specifically in stem cells and uh, next generation, um, well, sequencing and editing. So anything fun in that area. And with me today, I have my best Christmas gift. His name is Bixby. Um, (laughs) Supposed to be a squirrel if you can't tell. And he kind of uh, travels with me everywhere. I am going to one up that one in a second. Simon Erickson, your best Christmas gift ever. And of course, besides being the CEO of 7investing, tell people who you are. Hi, everyone. Simon Erickson at 7 Innovator. Um, looking for disruptive innovation and innovative companies out in the stock market. That could cover a whole lot of different things. But my favorite gift of all time, seventh grade electric guitar. Thanks, mom and dad. Inspired a love of music for the rest of my life. And uh, Simon Moonlights, uh, I believe in a Kiss cover band, but I'm just guessing. <laughs> Steve Symington, tell the people who you are and your best Christmas gift ever. I'm uh, Steve Symington. I cover... Artificial intelligence, machine learning is my specialty, but uh, I'll cover any decent business like Austin noted that is uh, likely to generate outsized returns over the long term. Uh, I will say my best Christmas gift, um, I'll call it my my oldest daughter. She was born right around Christmas. She's about to turn 13, and uh, uh, I'll, I'll say that. So she was definitely the best thing that I ever received around Christmas. So I'm Dan Klein. I cover retail. I cover consumer goods. I cover areas that aren't that sexy, but help you identify the companies that are going to do well. And uh, Sam Bailey, if you want to share the graphic, let me tell the story of my best Christmas gift ever. (laughs) This, of course, is Caroline. And one year, my wife said to me, can I give you your Christmas gift a couple weeks early? And then she made me sit in our finished basement uh, in the bedroom there. And I was waiting. I'm like, what's taking so long? Well, it turned out the cat was hiding under the couch. So it was a few hours and she had an extra present. She came uh, equipped with worms, but we of course got that taken care of. So now it is time. 
we've never done this before. We've never had seven people before. So this is going to be really exciting. Feel free, wherever you're watching this, in theory, comments you make, we can see. So make your comments, ask your questions. We'd love to talk to you. But we've got a jam-packed show with questions that you sent us on Twitter. We're going to start with one from GR. And he asks, is it okay to sell your low conviction stock to buy a higher conviction stock if you plan to have a concentrated portfolio? Steve, you wanted to answer this one. Oh, yes. Um, I'm always careful not to make blanket statements, and I won't make a blanket statement here, but I believe it is, yes, okay to sell low conviction stocks to buy higher conviction stocks. Uh, that's a mistake I've made in the past, you know, selling higher conviction stocks just because they climbed and, and um, you know, and I held on to these losers and these companies that I what, didn't feel as strongly about, and uh, they tend to continue underperforming. Um, for the very reasons that were lower conviction. So I think, yes, uh, you guys can change my mind. Uh, but most certainly, uh, if you have a stock that you really feel strongly about and you have a couple that are, eh, you know, it's you know, generally, you know, tr you can try and convince yourself, um, but at, at risk of, of you know, finding yourself lifted up by confirmation bias and, and finding opinions that align with what you want to hear, I think that's a, a fine decision. Thank you, Steve. Apparently, I'm not in perfect focus. Apologies. I don't think it's hmm. focus. I think it's the weird lighting. I, I think you're focused now. Oh, oh, okay. Maybe there was something on my lens because I wiped off my lens. That could be the problem as well. Oh, we're going to move to the next question. This one's from Samir. Uh, he asks, any predictions on Amazon? Uh, you know, I always want to bring up the Mr. T clip where he says, you know, my prediction, pain. But that is not our prediction. Matt, your thoughts <laughs> on Amazon? Uh, well, long term, I, I really like Amazon. It's a you know, it's a huge company, but I don't think that it's too big to grow or anything like that. E-commerce is obviously just this like it's continues to grow. Uh, this year, uh, like that just became more apparent than ever. Uh, and AWS is still the la the largest cloud provider uh, on earth, and it's growing. Um, and and that I expect to continue to continue to grow. And they still have many new opportunities. Like earlier this year, they announced like new ventures into pharmacy. That's after like two years ago, they bought PillPack um, and they just made a hundred million dollar investment in an India uh, pharmacy named Apollo. And th they're going to grow that. And I think they're going to take data on that and like, see if they can grow even further into that. Um, and it'll be another way, like they offer uh, discounts for Amazon Prime members for their pharmacy. And that's another way to grow Amazon Prime, which is one of the key things you want to follow when you follow Amazon. And, you know, other things like that, they, they're growing into logistics and fulfillment. And I just think uh, they're they're really smart with how they grow and they're going to take they're going to have some misses. But uh, there will be more more hits than misses. Matt, let me ask you, how do you feel about their grocery chain? I'm really bullish on it. They're already in the space. But they have Whole Foods, which is expensive groceries. They're going to launch about 2,000 regular grocery stores. For me, this says two things. Don't invest in Kroger or any pure grocery play. Two, I think this is going to give them another business and also another place where they can do digital distribution. Your thoughts there, Matt? Yeah, absolutely. Like all that. And and I wouldn't even worry too much about like what the margins will be for their grocery stores or anything like that. I think it's another way to get Amazon Prime members, which again, it's like one of those key things you want to follow when you follow Amazon. How many Amazon Prime members are there? And like they're going to have like wh whatever it'll be. It'll be special discounts or special delivery prices or et cetera, et cetera for Prime members. It'll be another way to get people into their sticky ecosystem so like anything that they can do to grow prime, I think is a, a, a huge win for them. Yeah, I am bullish on Amazon. We're going to move to a question from effortlessly crazy. That is a great Twitter handle. <laughs> uh, is there ever a period in time that one of your recommendations is too hot to enter due to a run up in price? Would you ever advise to wait for a little consolidation? Steve, you're going to take this first and then Max, you're going to jump in as well. Um, I... I hesitate to wait. That sounds like a funny thing to say. Too many times I've waited to enter only to find myself regretting it later because the stock just continued climbing. I think you need to be really, um, you need to kind of think twice before you you try and time your entries that way. And yes, sometimes stocks will soar, you know, double, triple, and you think, oh my goodness, no way it could continue to go higher. But the way I analyze stocks personally is based on their longer term potential and the massive markets that they are chasing. And often when I see a stock that has doubled, tripled, even quadrupled, uh, and I wait, 
I end up regretting it. So uh, maybe think twice uh, and think about dollar cost averaging in, in those cases, you know, don't necessarily, you know, if you've got a thousand, 10,000, whatever you want to put into this stock, uh, maybe do it in thirds, do it in quarters, uh, start. And that way, if, you know, you put a small position in, that's not the full size that you wanted and it continues climbing, at least you've partially participated in those gains. If it pulls back, you have a little bit of dry powder to put at work. Uh, that's how I would recommend maybe entering or adding to stocks that have climbed. So that's, that's how I'd approach that. Max, you're in biotech, which has been a little bit crazy, to say the least, this year. Things tripling, quadrupling just in like 10 minutes. Uh, what are your thoughts here? I know you wanted to comment as well. Yeah, so just with respect to biotech and that question, um, a lot of times you know, a company will pop based on really good data uh, or some uh, partnership that comes in or something <laughs> right that de-risks the investment case. So for uh, development stage companies that don't have revenue, uh, or earnings for that matter, um, you know, those big increases in share price can still make it a buy because it de-risks uh, the total investment, you know, case for the company. Now, sometimes like right, what we're seeing right now, uh, a lot of stocks are way crazy in biotech uh, just this week. I mean, a lot of CRISPR companies have, have soared with really for no reason. Um, I think that's just due to, uh, you know, fear of missing out or something. So that's a little different. But yes, if you know, you, if you uh, the company's still executing and it has good data and the stock jumps, I mean, that's not necessarily too hot to touch. That's de Thank you both. Simon Erickson, we are doing this live. So not only do we have questions that we took all week on Twitter, we also have questions in the live chat. There are two you wanted to comment on. Uh, why don't you read them and, uh, and Sam Bailey can put them on the screen. Do one at a time, of course. Simon Erickson. Sure. Yeah, thanks very much for submitting questions and keep them coming. We're going to try to take as many from Twitter, like Dan said, and the, the live questions at the same time. Uh, the first is there's a question from I'm Down for Down asking, what is your perspective on micro strategy? Taking a $400 million loan to buy Bitcoin. Great question. Thank you for this one. Uh, micro strategy is a very progressive company. And this is a risk that they're taking, that they're going, the gains that they're going to make in their corporate treasury by buying Bitcoin are going to outpace the cost of that loan. Um, I think that that's based on everyone that I've talked to that knows Bitcoin a lot more than I do. I think that probably is a pretty progressive, but a, but a good bet for a company that's willing to take those kind of risks. And then there was another one I wanted to yeah, touch so, on. Sorry, too, let, from, let, let, let me jump in here. Yeah. A company doing it is one thing. Don't you do it. <laughs> Don't borrow money to buy stocks. Don't borrow money for a speculative play. It's It's really dangerous. And I hate to say if a business does it, the business isn't risking its house. You know, the business is risking its success as a business. Feel free to add on or take the next one there. I have a quick comment on uh, on that. And actually, I disagree with Simon there. And I tweeted about this. I think uh, if you want to own Bitcoin, own Bitcoin. Don't own a publicly traded stock that's down over the last three years with declining operating metrics. That's investing in Bitcoin. Uh, that's my take on it. If you want Bitcoin exposure, own Bitcoin, not a fledgling. Yeah, great point, Austin. We, the stuff, still the well. fundamentals of the business are more important than whether or not they're actually making a bet with their corporate treasuries. I do think it was a pretty progressive move, and I applaud that uh, for, for MicroStrategy doing that. The other one that I want to touch on was ZL is asking, uh, do you think Billy, which is Billy Billy, uh, can be the next YouTube for the Chinese market? So background on this company, this is kind of a live streaming company, uh, much like we're doing a live stream here for 7investing now. There's a lot of user-generated content in China, which is very, very popular with the youngest generation over there. And especially in the gaming industry, uh, Billy Billy secured the license for the League of Legends uh, broadcast, which is kind of like the Super Bowl if you're a video gamer. And this is kind of one of the biggest events. It gets a lot of people online. You can start seeing the interactions that they're having on the side. There's a lot of data and advertising that is a, a huge component of this. And so the comparison to YouTube, I think, is probably a good one. Uh, YouTube has also got a lot of user-generated content, but this is for Billy Billy's purposes, uh, specifically in live streaming that I think the real opportunity is. Thank you, Simon. We're actually going to stick with you here. We've got two questions that I, that I grouped together. One is from Grasshopper Stocks, uh, and he wants to know, does technical analysis slash chart pattern have any place in the picks you make? Uh, and Dead for Tax Reasons, another great handle, uh, says, what do you find the <laughs> best resource to learn technical analysis? Um, Simon doesn't play a giant role in what I do, but I'm not sure that's true for everybody. Your thoughts? 
Yeah, we don't do a whole lot of technical analysis on this team. We tend to look at fundamentals like earnings, cash flows, revenue growth, things like that. Technical analysis is really more than anything behavioral analysis of the market. Uh, looking at charts to kind of see the behavior of traders in mass of when they find pockets of resistance, when they think that a stock is oversold and might be coming back up because people are ready to buy it then, or if it's been overbought and might revert back down because people are ready to sell it again. And so we don't do a whole lot of that analysis in our work, but one data point in here that's very interesting to me is actually called the short interest, uh, because this is a data point of how many people are actually shorting shares of an individual company's stock. When you're shorting shares, you're buying, you're borrowing them from your brokerage right now. You're actually selling them out into the market, and then you're going to buy them at a future date. So you're betting on the price of the stock going down so you can buy it again at a lower price than it is right now. And so you would think, okay, well, if people are starting to sell sh these shares short, if that percentage of the the short share the shares sold short, man, I need another cup of coffee for this conversation. <laughs> as a percentage of the outstanding shares that a company is got out there uh, in, in total, as that continues to grow, you might start saying, oh, well, that's a bad indicator, right? That's a bearish sign for the stock. What do these people know that I don't know about why the stock might be going down? I actually consider it completely opposite. I think that's a contrarian indicator that there's a lot of bullish perspective, I'm sorry, bearish perspective already baked into the shares, that the market as a whole is very pessimistic about a stock. And if they turn it around or outperform the expectations, that could be a really good sign that a lot of those shorts are trying to close their positions in a very short amount of time. And Simon, where do you go to find some of these numbers? I, well, one of the questions was about sort of resources. Do you have a, a specific one you recommend? Yeah, we use Y charts here at Seven Investing. We've been very happy with them. The specific metric that I look at is short interest, which is the number of shares that are sold short divided by the total number of publicly available outstanding shares. Uh, but there's a lot of data aggregators. You know, Morningstar I know reports that, and a lot of other companies where you can find short interest uh, reported on a whole bunch of different places. So I've got a question that I sort of made up from tons and tons of Twitter posts. It's from Manish and Max, and this is an area we kind of want to give a warning. Everyone asks us, should I be buying Moderna? Should I be buying Pfizer? With this idea that COVID-19 is going to be some wealth creator, and clearly the stocks have gone up, but it doesn't really make a ton of, ton of sense. Manisha, your thoughts here. Sure. I think if you are buying a stock just for uh, COVID-19 and uh, they're working on a therapy, I think that's the wrong investment thesis to have. Um, if you look at the vaccine uh, business in general, it's not a lucrative business. Sure, you'll have uh, a company coming out at this point, potentially three, four, uh, with a successful vaccine candidate. It's not gonna be a revenue generator. I think what should be done is uh, looking at the underlying technology that they use to develop a vaccine so quickly, does that make uh, investment sense? Uh, Moderna is based on messenger RNA. So the fact that they're able to do an mRNA-based vaccine, what that tells you is they're able to deliver mRNA, which is uh, usually considered highly unstable. Um, so really, it should be looking at the underlying pipeline, not if they're going to be successful. At Essentially, don't invest in pumpkins just because Halloween is coming. Max, your thoughts here. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, Moderna is valued right now, as we are speaking here, at $63 billion. That's uh, pretty insane. So on the one hand, you know, it's gotten a giant bucket of money from the government, right? So that's kind of de-risk development. But um, yeah, vaccines are not a great investment, you know. And, and one thing to add, too, we developed these vaccine candidates in, you know, 12 months or whatever it was because we had to. But the FDA is not going to just let us develop cancer drugs in nine months. Uh, going forward, you know, this is not going to be the norm. So keep that in mind. This is still a very risky space, drug development. Simon Erickson, Investment Talk asks us, uh, what are you guys going to do when inflation forces you to raise the price? I'll answer quickly. We're going to get more members. We're not going to raise the price. But Simon, your thoughts here at Seven Investing, which costs $17 a month or $170 a year. I think you can see the theme. Simon. Uh, great question, Investment Talk. I think that the only answer is that we're going to have to push out Max's 2025 Christmas gift of the Tesla Roadster a couple of years. Um, <laughs> we're, we're not raising prices. We're going to stick at $17 a month. We we did this in the, the earliest stages of the business. We said we wanted to be affordable for everybody to invest in the stock market. We're not going to price this just for the, the elite that can afford a multi-thousand dollar a year product. 
this is something we want to democratize the love of investing for everyone. So we're keeping it $17. We're not raising prices and we're not selling upselling to more expensive products. It's going to stick that way. And if we succeed as a business, it's going to succeed because we get more and more members that love this product that we continue adding to every single month. And of course, if you'd like to subscribe, it is seveninvesting.com slash subscribe. We highly recommend you do it. We'll talk a little bit more about the service later, but we're going to keep with your questions. There's a question in here from Nishan, and it's it's about if Tesla falls 30%, are you buying, are you selling, are you holding? I won't answer from a Tesla point of view. I'm going to throw <laughs> it to, uh, to Austin in a second to talk about Tesla. In my case, if I like a company and it falls by 30%, Unless the reason it fell was I really hated something about it. Let's say yesterday at Disney's Investor Day, they announced that all of their new projects were going to be seven dwarves themed. Each dwarf was going to get its own show. And then I might go, oh, wow, that changes my thesis. I see why it's going down. Oftentimes, the reason something goes down is short term and it changes absolutely nothing. Austin Lieberman, your thoughts on this one? Well, first, Dan, um, I I take exception to your comment and disdain for the seven dwarves uh i'm actually a big fan so i'm not anti uh, i'm not anti seven dwarves i'm just not sure i want to watch the sleepy show (laughs) (laughs) i would go 100 long disney no i'm just kidding uh exactly what you said dan regardless really doesn't matter the company doesn't matter um it, it would depend on what caused the drop was it uh was it Tesla raising money at the stock price being an, an all-time high and then being able to invest more in the business? To me, that's a good long-term thing. If the stock drops 30% and I like the business, I would consider buying. Um, but I have to like the business and it is always going to come down to what what management is doing and what caused the drop if we even know why. Sometimes it just happens for no reason at all. Uh, so, Yeah. We lose you, Dan. Camera's back on me. That could be a dangerous oh, thing. If you guys no, want me I, to host so on. I kicked myself <laughs> off. <laughs> I, for some reason, perilously close to the chat button that we have to to go back and forth from <laughs> is a log off button. <laughs> Why they would put that? We're gonna we're gonna bring that up to the restream people. I thought um, you were so mad about my seven dwarves comment. <laughs> no, I mean, sure, Doc would be a good show. That would basically be ER in the in the seven world, but like. How much grumpy? Like, I feel now I was teasing a little bit. I wanted an extreme example of where, you know, the one I always give is like, what if Starbucks came out and said, we're only going to sell kombucha? We're going to get rid of coffee. Well, that might be a reason why in a 30% drop, I would sell. I would no longer believe in the company. But look, if you believe in Tesla, you're not pricing it for today. It's going to be a volatile stock. I I would think it largely is because they're selling uh, and they absolutely should be raising more money at a time while they can. Uh, Naresh asks us, how would you navigate through a bear market? Uh, how do you hedge a portfolio so that you don't lose all your gains in a crash? Also, when do you hedge? Uh, Steve, you wanted to answer this, and you also live someplace where sometimes there's actually a bear market with you know bears. <laughs> Literally bears in my yard sometimes. Uh, I I don't hedge. Uh, to be honest, I, I don't, you know, I don't use limit orders. I don't use options uh, to hedge. Uh, I don't hedge my portfolio. Uh, and part of that's because I don't really mind uh, when the market crashes or pulls back hard because uh, the companies I'm holding, I'm holding for years. And I, I'm i not really concerned by that kind of near-term volatility. I try to uh, continuously add to my portfolio over time. And uh, if the market pulls back so much, the better. I'm a long-term investor. I celebrate drops like that. And uh, I said as much uh, in the months leading up to this March crash when I was kind of voicing concern uh, over that. And uh, I was saying, you know what, Uh, we should be happy with this. And uh, a lot of us are now. Um, But navigating through a bear market, I think more than anything, is a test of your temperament uh, as an investor. And I think that is underappreciated your ability to emotionally withstand pullbacks like that, because we aren't short-term traders. And that's kind of how I, I handle it. I don't think of it as losing my gains in a crash. I think of it as an opportunity to add to companies that uh, I love at lower prices. 
my hedge is that I live below my means. So if you're right at the edge and you have a lot of credit card debt and, and you sort of look at your portfolio as backing that, if you're living right. below your means and you have equity in your home and you're not taking on debt, those that volatility doesn't matter because my portfolio is largely for when I retire. And you know, very likely retirement is many, many years off. Matt Cochran, you wanted to weigh in on this one a, a little bit and talk about uh, – uh, portfolio sizing, dollar cost averaging, and averaging up and down. Yeah, sure. Like, you know, the other thing I would just tell people, and I think Steve's absolutely right, your time horizon is the best hedge uh, you have. Uh, but like the other thing I would say is like, you don't, if you like a company and you're worried that there might be a crash coming soon or like it's overvalued or anything like that, don't feel like you have to buy a company once and then that decision is made forever. Uh, you can buy a company several different times. Like if you feel like uh, you want, uh, if you like a company, take a small position in it and tell yourself if it doesn't fall more than 20% or more in the next nine months, eight months, you're going to buy more uh, at that time, even if it goes up more and just dollar cost average into, uh, into positions. Uh, I think that's a, a key strategy I use for my own portfolio. It helps me overcome my fear of like investing in hyper growth companies that I think might be overvalued or something like that. And it's, it's helped me overcome my fear and, uh, and just knowing that, well, if it drops, I'm going to be buying more in a certain amount of time or next year or whenever that is. Um, it, it helps me overcome my fear, and I think it's just a good way to. We're going to talk about bubbles in a second, and take a very good question from uh, Joey Klein. No relation, but a, a a friend from the uh, from the other place we used to work. That being said, Simon Erickson, what we're doing today is we're taking questions from the Twitterverse, from the people watching live. This is a little bit like something we do just for members. We're going to do this uh, a week from Friday. Do you want to explain what we do? Yeah, sure. Thanks very much, Dan. So in addition to issuing stock recommendation reports every month, which is our seven best ideas in the stock market, we heard a lot of subscribers saying, hey, we'd really like to interact with you and ask questions about these companies that you're recommending. And we've always got info at 7investing.com. That's always an option. You can email us and talk specifically about those stocks. But we also said, hey, wouldn't it be fun if we just had a call like this where we could just have a roundtable discussion about all of our recommendations? The current recommendations for this month, the previous recommendations, uh, an interaction between subscribers talking about stocks together. And so that's what we did, Dan, is every third Friday of the month, we have a subscriber-only call where we send an invitation similar to a live stream chat like this, but it's really the nitty-gritty of the stock recommendations we've made. And so that's what we do. Uh, is we have it, it runs for about 90 minutes. We talk about our current recommendations and what we're seeing uh, that are important updates for previous recommendations. It's a lot of fun. And we do that every third Friday for paying subscribers at 7investing. One of the other things we do is uh, if you message us at 7investing on Twitter or info at 7investing.com, people are always surprised that they hear back from us. This is a small, intimate service. We're not going to have millions of members. We're going to hopefully have tens of thousands of members where we can still communicate with all of you. So sometimes, and of course, we can't give individual portfolio advice, but sometimes it's just talking strategy. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, how do you approach certain things? So if you're a member, you get access to more of us, and that is generally a good thing. Um, we're going to move on to uh, Joey Klein's question. Forgot that is a live question. Is the stock market a bubble? And if it is a bubble, is it going to burst? Steve Simonton, I'll go to you. Then I'll go to Austin. Then I'll go to Matt. Steve, you're up first. You know we've we've talked about this quite a bit in our own Slack channels uh, amongst the team. Uh, just yesterday, we were having a conversation about that. And uh, I, I don't, I'm not convinced we're in a bubble right now. Uh, and I was kind of likening, you know, I was talking about, okay, look how far uh, valuations were stretched and look how far so many stocks ran at the, at the, in the dot-com bubble. And uh, Simon brought up a great point, And maybe you can elaborate that on that too, Simon, uh, that this, um, the tech stocks, these, these SaaS stocks that we're looking at uh, right now, there's so much more attention uh, on retention rates and recurring revenue and the actual quality of the business uh, that, I'm not convinced, you know, that doesn't mean we won't have a hard pullback. And a lot of people are going to say, oh my God, bubbles bursting. But uh, I, I don't think, I don't think we're in a bubble right now. And I think right now uh, we're in a longer term, um, you know, bull market. That's, that's just, you know, it might have some natural corrections here and there, but I think this goes a lot longer than people realize. Next. 
I'll jump in on that too, just because Steve, you mentioned the uh, the difference between tech values being uh, called overvalued today and the tech bubble that they were being called back in 2000, 2001. I think that the business model of a lot of those companies has changed. Mm-hmm. I mean, back in the 2000, 2001, we were, we were putting it on, on advertising, right? Everyone had a website. The pets.com was attracting advertising dollars and all that money just kind of blew up in the dot-com burst. Today, I think that cloud computing has really fundamentally changed how these tech companies are obtaining their revenue. It's subscription revenue that's recurring in nature. And so there's cash flows coming in the door for important embedded products, you know, cybersecurity or operational intelligence. I mean, these are these are must-haves for a lot of companies. And so when you were saying, yeah, the valuations are getting out of hand, oh, look at the multiples versus where they were 10 or 20 years ago. I think that's justified because it's a better business. And these companies are more recurring and higher quality cash flows than they were when we were basing it on advertising back at the test at the uh, tech bubble boom in 2000. Yeah, I worked on the tech bubble boom. I worked at a company called Uproar.com, which was a top 25 website in terms of traffic. There was absolutely no possibility revenue would have even paid for our servers, let alone our people. There was no path to profitability. And that's very different because of the cloud. Austin Lieberman, I'll give you the last word on this topic. Yeah, sure. Uh Thanks. I think um, more money has been lost or opportunity has been lost by listening to the people that have been calling the next bubble since, what, 1999? Uh, Bubbles are different than pullbacks. We've already talked about that. Pullbacks are going to happen. They're healthy. Just invest through those. I don't think we're in anywhere near the situation we were in 2000. Are there certain companies and maybe sectors that uh, I don't want to invest in because I think they're extremely inflated and potentially in bubble territory. Yes, but there always are. That's why we do, we go through our research process and we try to invest in great companies, not just what's going up because it's going up. And and the the last part I'll say, which we haven't mentioned yet is interest rates, right? Uh, Interest rates impact uh, future investment returns. And with, with interest rates so low, the best option, the, the, best potential return on a a lot of money, at least a lot of people think this, and even businesses that are investing in themselves and borrowing money to grow think this is uh, in equities. And and the last part is that we just went through one of the worst crises in the world. And we're not through it yet. But uh, what we've proven is that our the global economy, because of things like the cloud infrastructure and edge computing and the security that we have and the ability for restaurants to go from in-person to delivery and DoorDash and all that stuff. Uh, We have rebounded in businesses. There's a lot of businesses struggling, but we have shown as a global economy, we can rebound. We have uh, Federal Reserve that is supporting businesses and showing they want to support businesses. So there's a lot of issues. I'm an optimist, and I think that uh, our the business landscape has gotten better. We've also shown that we can come up with vaccines in a year for for something that would have been a major, major detriment to the entire global population, what, 20 years ago? So uh, I see a lot of bullishness. Um, There will be pullbacks, though. I'm not saying there's never going to be a 10% or 20% pullback. You're watching Seven Investing Now. We're, of course, taking your questions, some of them from Twitter, some of them live. We're going to plow through and get a few more in because it is not often all seven of us are on one of these shows. In fact, this is the first time we've ever done it. VM wants to know, Everyone talks the strengths of CRISPR and related tech. Can you cover threats and weaknesses with it as well? Also, any examples of human trials? Max, I'll let you take the first part of this one here. Uh, yeah, so we talk about this a lot, Manish and I. You know, um, One of the biggest opportunities in biotech is the fast pace of innovation. That's also one of the biggest risks. Um, so you know, we talk of CRISPR as if it's you know, the best discovery of biotech in the 21st century. Well, you know, it's only 2020, right? Um, and there's a lot of other gene editing tools that aren't CRISPR based. So it's the one that kind of has all the hype. It gets all the headlines, um, but it's not the only one out there. It's not the only tool we can use. It's not the only genetic medicine. Uh, you know, there's still gene therapy. There's RNAi. There's antisense. Uh, so all of these things have strengths and weaknesses. Will all be used in different use cases and scenarios. Um, it's not really a winner take all. Anisha, Sammy, give uh, us the, the winner take all winner. No, just kidding. Just uh, give us your thought. <laughs> give us your thoughts here. Sure. Um, you know, when thinking about CRISPR, um, that's only just, I'll just say, everyone talks about CRISPR Cas9. There are multiple different nucleases. Um, you know, Cas9, it makes a blunt cut. Um, so editing is kind of more difficult. Um, 
But there, I mean, I think what we'll see in the future, and we already have started, is kind of these different nucleases. So, you know, um, the IP holders of Cas9 will not um, have the best CRISPR-based technology either. Um, they're just different flavors and variations, um, different types of cuts. So it's kind of, uh, you'll want a basket of gene editing tools. Uh, in terms of human trials, um, I touched on this uh, earlier uh, this week, but uh, CRISPR Therapeutics came out with great phase one uh, tri uh, human trials for treating sickle cell disease. They um, dosed 10 patients with um, edited stem cells. And after, um, uh, I think the longest follow-up was 18 months. So at 18 months follow-up, um, these patients uh, did not have the complications um, associated with sickle cell disease. And they're even saying that it might be a functional cure. I mean, when was the last time we were talking about cures for disease? So it's, it's exciting, but um, there's still a lot of room for growth. If you wonder why we have seven people, it's so we can bring you this level of expertise. We all study different things. Even in the biotech world, uh, Max and Manisha can play off each other, but they have different strengths. It's what makes this team so great. We've we're, we got a few more of your questions. We're going to try to keep the show to about uh, 45 minutes if, if possible, uh, and we'll take some of the questions we didn't do this time, and we'll use them on some of our shows next week. Won't have all of us, uh, but we'll dole them out to some of the shows. Uh, at Robert G. Cartwan, to know how do you evaluate ipos steve you wanted to take that one yeah um and, and that's been some, a question that's coming up a lot more recently some huge ipos and some pretty exciting ipos uh, over the last several months and even the last couple days um read the s1 filing uh it's a comprehensive filing that uh that they uh, provide to the sec and, and investors leading up to the ipo uh has most of the information you could ever want to know uh, about this company and its financial condition and its plans for growth going forward, risks, everything uh, you can find in that S1 filing. But also, um, you know, don't be afraid to, to, to search around, find some S1 recaps to find some important points you might have missed because these are hefty uh, documents uh, that you got to dig through. So, um, but I guess, trust then verify, you know, do your homework, look at what people are saying about this S1. Don't be afraid to read other people's research and save yourself a little bit of time. Um, but definitely go through and validate everything that people say. Uh, but really what I'm looking for is not only the value uh, of the company, uh, the proposed IPO prices. I, I generally don't buy right at the IPO. Uh, I will give it time. Uh, I, it's, it's really difficult to get in at an attractive price often um, right away uh, with a lot of these really hyped up IPOs. But one of the things, uh, you know, that I tend to do is wait, you know, a couple of months or even a couple of quarters to really consider stepping in myself because of some of that post IPO volatility. In some cases, and seven investing subscribers will know this, uh, I will kind of go out on a limb and say, you know what, I think this is attractive, but it's a very case by case basis. So uh, start with that S1 filing. And just just read and read and read and uh, and get to know the company well. That yeah, is. let me let me elaborate a little bit here. Um, so I always wait at least two quarters, unless it's a business that I've been following for a very long time. Because here's the problem with an S one. An S one is a very rosy document. Uh, it's meant to, to to sort of paint a good picture. It gives you the the bear case, but. It's not the same as quarterly reporting. So usually after a couple of quarters, you've seen how, how management talks. You see how they deal with problems. You see if they follow through quarter to quarter. And we've said this before many times in the show. Look at any high-flying company, any company that's done really well. And it didn't matter if you waited two or three quarters. If you bought Amazon three quarters in, you'd be really, really up. So there's no reason you have to get in. I understand the fear of missing out. Uh, but look, there have been some some IPOs this week. Uh, Airbnb, DoorDash. I don't want those companies based on. Now, Dan, let me chime in on this one if I can. I'm not sure mm -hmm. if, uh, if Dan's feed froze for anybody else, but I did want to chime in and say that we've actually bought but into I... a couple recently public no, companies. Oh, Dan, you may or may not be there and may or may not be agreeing with what I'm saying. If you are disagreeing, I'm going to continue talking anyway, because there's no way you can refute this argument. <laughs> uh, we have bought into a couple recently public companies. They've done quite well for seven investing. And I hear the points that you're making as well, Dan, about it. sometimes it does pay to wait mm -hmm. so you can see a little bit more data over time. Is that the point you're making, I think, Dan? 
Yeah, it's, you know, look, obviously there are going to be companies, you know, let's say you follow the company as a private company, you know, it's management really well, you're betting on things other than just the numbers they report. I'm totally fine with buying it. But a lot of people buy IPOs just because they're hot IPOs. In that case, take your time. Uh, I'm not sure why I got kicked out of the room there, but technology is always interesting. Simon, feel free to finish up here. No, great points, Dan. I agree with everything you said. Yeah. And I, I just to, to chime in at the very end here. Um, yeah, it's it's one of those things where if we see an IPO that we think is attractive shortly after that IPO, we will say so. Uh, and our subscribers know as much and they've done pretty well uh, with a couple of those companies in recent months. They know which companies we're talking about. But um, it's it's really a case by case basis. So often, like Dan, I will wait a couple of quarters. But uh, if we find something that we're excited about and we think it's undervalued relative to its long term potential, uh, we aren't afraid of diving in. But uh, again, case by case. So as I was uh, kicked out there, I was introducing a question. I have no idea how much of it you heard. Uh, Jay <laughs> Tucker asks, "I've heard the U.S. is printing money. What are your thoughts on investing in metals and crypto in addition to stocks?" Matt, you're going to take this, but I want I want to throw something out. I have no interest in owning metals. Metals don't create anything. I, I have a hedge, and that's there's money in my bank account. <laughs> I, I don't want to invest in gold. Uh, but Matt, there are some financial areas you're interested in investing in. Your thoughts? Well, yeah. So just real quick, uh, yeah, I think that is a concern. And I think uh, you know inflation is a possibility, even though there's lots of factors at play there, uh, more than just uh, the Fed printing a lot of money. Uh, I would say like overall, like from a big picture point of view, if you want to diversify your assets a little bit and put some in cryptocurrency or some in like uh, hard metals like gold, I, I, don't ha- I don't have any problems with that. What I would say is though also there's some really interesting like different ways you can play inflation than just gold or cryptocurrency like so take mastercard and visa for instance like two of my favorite companies uh like they have they generate lots of profits every year those profits grow and their operating margins are are consistently above 50 percent, which is just incredible and why do i think they're good inflation plays because as prices go up uh for every purchase that's made using a mastercard or a visa they capture a percentage of that purchase so if prices go up and a loaf of bread costs ten dollars a year from now because of inflation. Well, the that percentage will grow with the price of the loaf of bread, and like that that that's across the board. So with every purchase, Mastercard and Visa capture a little bit, uh, capture the same percentage, but that'll translate naturally into uh the percentage that they capture from each purchase. So that that goes the dollar amount they capture from each purchase goes up. And so there's other companies too that like uh, have take rates and that's like PayPal and Square. Those companies, any company that makes a percentage of a transaction, like I think those will naturally increase with inflation, the, the dollar amount they capture. So I really like those companies, those types of companies too, as a way to play against inflation. So it's not just gold or cryptocurrency. Those aren't your only options when it comes to playing inflation. Matt, let's keep you going because I think Dan might be stuck for a little longer. Uh, George Abdel Ahad, one of the questions that was uh, submitted over here, thoughts on compliance and accounting software like BL and AVLR. I know that you mentioned kind of you like these companies because they have really high retention rates. Any thoughts about those kind of companies? Uh, yeah, I love it. Like, so like if, if you believe that uh, that government's going to increase regulations and that companies will see uh, see more regulations and taxes in the future, especially as global commerce like continues to grow. Right. With e-commerce, like global transactions are more popular than ever. And so it's much more likely now that I will buy something that's uh, that's like being made or sold at a different company than it used to be because I don't do international travel that much. But now with the internet, I can definitely buy things that are made and sold all over the world. And with those kinds of transactions comes more regulations and more taxes. And Blackline and Avalara, those companies definitely like play into that like uh, overall trend. Like Avalara helps companies that sell things to comply with tax laws, from all over, from different states, from different uh, countries, uh, from different local uh, local municipalities, like the, so, Avalara just helps companies like uh, like make the pay their taxes in real time and saves them a lot of headaches down the road. Blackline helps larger corporations like with these accounting tasks that are very laborious and tedious, uh, and it helps people like it helps the companies make real time. Uh, 
make decisions based on real-time data instead of waiting at the end of the month or the end of the quarter or the end of a year to, to reconcile everything. And then they have all their data and then they can make decisions. Blackline helps companies make real-time decisions based on, on up-to-date, uh, up-to-the-minute date uh, data, and th which is a huge, huge, huge uh, help for those corporations. So anytime, if you believe like government regulations and taxes will grow and continue to get more complex, uh, Blackline and Avalara, I think, are two great plays on that trend. Great. Okay. Thank I'll send one to you. We got another question here from uh, Jay Tucker. He says, uh, I'd like to chime in on this one too, but I'd like to hand it to you first. He says, compounding is huge. However, if the majority of stocks I own are growth stocks without a dividend, am I still compounding? What do you think about that one, Austin? Yeah, uh, I think we are all going to have the same answer on this. Um, compounding is compounding, uh, whether the stock price appreciates and you have unrealized gains or if you receive a dividend. So there's no difference. Um, I... I don't look to own any companies just because they're dividend payers. I'm not at that point in my uh, investing journey, I'll call it. I'm, I'm still going to be adding for a really long time and I have other income. Um, so I just like to invest in great companies and then let those companies compound my capital by growing over time through their great management, their great products, increased sales. Um, so even if you have unrealized gains, you are still compounding your money because if something goes up 10% and then it goes up another 10%, the gain is off of that increased 10%, not off of your original cost basis or investment. So you, you are still compounding. It yeah. is always, it is always an adventure. Uh, so I am now on my phone. <laughs> Greetings from my phone. My entire computer crashed. I have no idea what happened. Uh, before we close out, we're going to, we're going to skip what we planned uh, for the, the home stretch. We're going to move right into the finisher, but let me ask, uh, is there any question I missed that someone wanted to grab? I don't know what I missed while my computer was crashing. Raise your hand uh, or just step in if there's one you wanted to field. Uh, Dan, I'll, I'll, I'd like to finish up just one thought on the capital allocation too, and then I can hand it back to you maybe for the finisher right after that. By the way, hashtag dedication, Dan Klein, <laughs> computer crashing and getting kicked out of live stream and still making it happen on his phone. Uh, <laughs> holy cow, man, that's dedication. Thank you for this. Uh, to, to follow up on Jason's question about the compounding, it's this is what I always call the two beer conversation. And Steve and I have talked about this on a podcast, yeah. but the idea of capital allocation is really a conversation about how is a company spending its money? It can either be doing that internally or it can be doing it externally and both are for the good of its investors. And so if it's spending it internally, which is like what Austin was just describing, it could be putting it to work on projects that have an internal rate of return. It could be going out and acquiring other companies that it believes that it's going to capture future cash flows. It could be synergies that it's going to roll out across the entire business. But it's using that money to work that's still for your good, but it's being put to work internally. The other idea of compounding is a company putting it to work externally. So it could be buying back its shares or paying you out a dividend that you could use to buy more shares over time. And so as companies kind of progress in their, in their lifestyle from being these, these new, sexy, fast-growing companies that maybe want to go out there and do acquisitions or they want to take advantage of all the market growth, they tend to put the work uh, they tend to put their capital to work internally on your behalf. And then as companies get more and more mature, maybe they don't have as exciting of growth prospects anymore. They tend to start sharing it more and more externally. And that's why you see these large companies with huge competitive moats that are paying out dividends and, and investors are really interested in them because they can compound those over and over time and buy more and more shares. But it's really a, an individual perspective that you have of what kind of company do you want to invest in? Um, what's your time horizon? What's your risk tolerance? And that can guide you to the types of companies. But capital allocation runs the entire continuum. It's a really great conversation, a really great question. That, uh, Simon, we are uh, we're learning the limits of technology here. So maybe I should just broadcast from the phone, aside from this unflattering angle, because I'm holding it, on uh, the iPhone working shockingly well. So shout out to T-Mobile. So you're watching Seven Investing now. We're answering your questions. Uh, there's some we didn't get to. We appreciate the people watching live, uh, but we're going to move right to our finisher. Sam Bailey, feel free to throw that one up. Is Facebook a monopoly? 36.1% uh, of you said yes. 
41.3 said no, and 22% said no, but close enough. I'm going to go around the room. Everyone could give their comments. Uh, Matt, you can be first. Uh, no, I, w- I would say definitely not. Like, I think there's plenty of competition in the social media space. Uh, and I am long share, so maybe I'm biased, but I think Snapchat, TikTok, uh, Twitter, I mean, I, you know, you could, you could go on. I think there's plenty of competition in the space, uh, digital advertising, like, it, like first you have to define Facebook, I guess. So let's start there. Like, are they a social media? And I don't even think they're a monopoly in social media, but if you go broader and just say, are they a monopoly in digital advertising? They're even less of a monopoly there because you have Google and, and, and others that have plenty, uh, make plenty of revenue with digital advertising. So I, I don't think, uh, they're a monopoly at all. I don't think so either. Uh, I don't know if Dan's talking or not, but, uh, I, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that provide the same services as Facebook. Uh, they might be the largest one and they kind of, uh, combine them all together. But, um, if you want to be on a different social network, you can be, and if you're a business and you want to advertise somebody somewhere else, you still can. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in here. Um, Dan, we can't hear you on your phone. So, you know, I think um, I have a different view, but uh, I think, you know, what's important is that this is a, a legal definition of monopoly is different than I think what a lot of people, uh, how would they would define it, right? It's not, does it have 100% of the market? Um, a lot of it comes down to this question of anti-competitiveness. I think that is the argument that's going to be made for or against uh, in this antitrust case. Um, but, you know, anti-competitive behavior and actions, that has a lot to do with how uh, regulators will, you know, decide on monopolistic behavior or whether it's a monopoly. Um, so even though there are other options and there's a million other apps, um, you know, is Facebook doing things that stifles competition uh, with respect to its own markets. I think that's the important thing to keep in mind. So maybe, uh, Simon, you want to weigh in? We'll just keep passing it around. I think so. I think that, uh, you know, Matt Cochran has actually convinced me over the last year that Facebook is not a monopoly and I shouldn't be worried about regulations. I agree with him on that. Uh, no for both counts. And in fact, maybe uh, we might want to close this out. We're wrapping up the show here today. Uh, First of all, I'd like to say thank you for joining us on this live stream. Of course, as you see, anything can happen in a live stream. We're not hiding behind anything. And, you know, just as luck has it, our host of the show has the technical difficulties. But Dan, I still think that even with technical difficulties and broadcasting from your phone, I still think you're the best host in live streaming in the entire world. So I'm passing that along to you there and thank you for everything you do with this show. Uh, Thank you to the entire team. We had all seven lead advisors of Seven Investing on this show. As Dan said so many times earlier on, we have different perspectives. We're picking different types of stocks. We tend to narrow in on certain certain, uh, ways of thinking about things, but then we share those as a group when we're talking about them as a team. And that's all included in the seven recommendations that we provide every single month for just $17. Uh, So thanks again for tuning in. Again, this was a a very special seven investing. Now we had all of the entire team here. We took your questions again, uh, paying subscribers of seven investing. will get access to our subscriber call next Friday. We'll be digging deeper into our actual recommendations. We encourage everybody to join us for those. And with that said, I'll hand it uh, over to you for the rest of your day. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll see you next week. that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.